What's up everyone? Welcome back to Off The Chain, the backbone for storytelling across builders, creators, and collectors within Web3. Each episode, we dive into how these technologists use the power of blockchain to build businesses and foster creativity. Today, we've got Richard, the co-founder at Manifold. Manifold empowers digital creators with tools and applications, enabling true creative sovereignty and the ability to create innovative NFT experiences for their audiences. These tools include their studio, allowing artists to mint and own their own contracts, gallery to list and sell their own work, as well as a suite of developer tools to build rich custom experiences and push the boundaries of what NFTs can do. I've been a fan of Richard since I've joined Web3 and I'm thrilled to bring this episode to you. Enjoy. Richard, what's going on, man? So nice to meet you. Good, good to be here. I'm really pumped to have you here. And, and like I said off camera, really grateful that you're here. When I think about some of the most important and impactful people in the industry, you really are top of mind. And your vision and the way that you present yourself to the community and your product that you've built is really just top class. And so kind of interestingly enough, after you accepted, I had such a vision of what I wanted to speak with you about that I literally came up with my questions like while on the subway within 10 minutes, not because I was being lazy, just because I anticipated this conversation for so long and I just had a vision of where it could go. So again, before we get going, <laughs> just want to say thank you for joining the podcast. Yeah, well, good to be here, and I'm excited to hear where you want to, where your vision is. So let's of let, course. let's do it. So let's uh, make sure we start with the softball questions a little bit. Can you just tell us who sure. is Richard and what is your current role? Yeah, so my name is Richard. I'm the, currently the co-founder of Manifold, and Manifold is you know I think it's a lot of things, but I think more importantly, our mission is to enable creative sovereignty for artists, and we do so by providing tools that allow them. To really experience Web3 in a sovereign way. So that's everything from everything from deploying their own smart contracts for minting NFTs to really being able to allow them to like sell those NFTs kind of on their own terms. You know, so when someone mints an NFT on a manifold contract, they can bring it to any marketplace or they can sell it on their own. And you know, one of the big things is that these contracts are hundred percent artist and creator owned. So you know, there's no kind of platform underneath it. You know, our our kind of saying is all, has always been the creator is the platform. Uh, on top of that, I've worked on probably a lot of the top NFT projects in the space. You know, some of them being like you know collaborations with Fuck, Fuck Render, Pack, Mad Dog Jones. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of projects out there, and I'm pretty sure almost everyone owns NFT kind of created, you know, by Manifold or you know something I've had my hands in. That's awesome. And and I know a lot of people are very familiar with Studio, which is where you allow your creators to build contracts. Today, I also do want to talk about the gallery. But even before going into all that, would love just to take a step back and know what was Richard like as a student? What was school like growing up for you? And, and what did you find most interesting? Oh, that's interesting. Never had that one before. Um, yeah, I, I think the th so I was kind of a computer geek, like, so I started programming when I was like 13 years old and I actually got made fun of a lot just cause, you know, I was just always in the computer lab, just like learning how to program. And part of that was because I wanted to learn how to make video games. And so, you know, I think through my teenage years, I was kind of a loner, just kind of like, you know, in the computer lab, just toiling away, just learning how to code all day. And yeah, back then computers weren't cool. There was like, you know, I was literally a computer geek cause that's all I would do play video games and, you know, just learn how to code. Um, 
the university came and it just became natural for me to go into computers. Uh, it was actually a little too easy. So I like actually got two degrees. I got a business degree and an engineering degree. And from there, I actually started my own company like right after my very first company was a video game company making iPhone games uh, right out of university. Yeah, you were a serial entrepreneur. You worked in building both social apps as well as a fintech company. What do you enjoy most about building in Web3 that you didn't get to build in Web2? I think the big thing is that it's a brand new paradigm, right? So as an engineer, the new things always excite me. And so, you know, when you're dealing with the blockchain and dealing in Web3 development, it's just a different way of thinking about things. You know, one thing is that you have to be a really good coder. You have to really think about system design because otherwise, you know, you could get wrecked because, you know, if someone out there is smarter than you or you're exploiting your system, then, you know, they're going to try to exploit it. It's actually really funny because I got my start in Web3 kind of doing these kind of exploits, you know, like I, mainly on Nifty Gateway. So, so uh, when I started buying NFTs, I started making bots and kind of just using them to buy buy stuff on Nifty Gateway. And, you know, I became kind of, you know, I guess like infamous in that case. But one of the things is that whenever I found something that was like exploitable on Nifty Gateway, I always reported it because, you know, I was just trying to make the systems better. And, you know, I, I think that everything is kind of fair game. And, you know, but as long as you're trying to be a good actor in that, in that regard. And as someone who likes to stay on the forefront of tech, we are working in a space right now where one month in Web3 land is the equivalent to about six to 12 months in Web2. What checks and balances do you keep in place to not just run around and try to build everything, but really stay focused on what your core product is? And is that difficult for you to stay so focused? Uh, so at the beginning, it was really hard just because, you know, like, I guess like before Manifold, it was just me and my two co-founders and we were just exploring, right? So we we're just building tools for ourselves. And then, you know, once Manifold actually started and became a serious thing, then we actually had a name for ourselves and we we're trying to build, you know, something solid. And on top of that too, trying to attract people to the company that were also on the same mindset. And so, uh, you know, I think that at the very beginning, it was like, how do we do everything? But, you know, once we started establishing, you know, what our vision was, um, for the company. And, you know, I think the big thing is that if you have a good vision, if you have a good mission, everything kind of falls into place of that, into that, into that framework. You know, so like, for example, whenever we do something, we ask ourselves, does this fit into the mission of Manifold, you know, which is enabling creative sovereignty, uh, expanding the reach of Web3. And, you know, if it does, right, then we say, yes, we will kind of pursue kind of going down that line. If not, then we don't do it. You know, an example of this, for, an example of this is, you know, the whole PFP craze. Manifold never really got into making PFP projects. You know, we've done it for artist creators that we've worked with because we had these existing relationships and then we really believed in working with the artists. But, you know, we haven't really built tools for like PFP generation or creation or that kind of tool set. Because, you know, that's just something we didn't believe was a long-term sustainable part of Web3. You know, there's a lot of other companies out there who kind of went down that route, made a lot of money, uh, you know, and have been successful. But, you know, we just didn't think that was like the long-term vision for what, Web3 and NFTs was. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting. And I was going to ask you a little bit later, where do you stand on PFPs? And maybe I'll jump into that right now. You know, you are seemingly a guy who loves one of one artists, although you do own at least one punk. Where do you think the future of PFPs goes? And we're also going to talk about royalties in a second as well. But do you think we will ever see another crazy run where we saw? Or from here, it's kind of just going to be stable and potentially just traject downwards in terms of general interest in random PFP projects? 
So my take on PFP projects has always been, you know, I think there's three parts to a good NFT project in general, right? You have the tech, you have the community, and you have the art. I've always felt like a lot of PFP projects heavily relied on the community aspect and not so much on the tech or the art. And, you know, because of that, you know, the community, community, those communities have always been buying, been buying things because of, you know, speculation and so on. And so, you know, when the price goes down, they're like, oh, this community is dying and so I'm going to leave, right? And so I always felt like that community aspect was not like the strongest aspect of things. Uh, you know, the, the communities that have like good art and good tech, you know, are, are really been debatable tech. I think those are ones that are like really interesting because, you know, they're actually playing into what the strength of the blockchain are. You know, for the tech, for the tech, for example, there's so many kind of innovative things that can do that you can do that just creates brand new experiences and engagement for the products themselves. And then for the text side of the, or what is the other one? The art side of thing, you know, everybody appreciates good art, right? And so, you know, there was a lot of low quality art coming out of some of these PFP projects that just, you know, just didn't hit the mark. But, you know, I think going forward, you know, a mark of good PFP project is, you know, projects are really thinking all three of those things. You know, an example of this would be Doodles, for example, right? Doodles art looks pretty good. You know, it actually looks really good in context. You can see how it could be something bigger than a PP project. And, you know, they really focus on creating good tech. Yeah. Right? And then their community is just also super strong, right? So that's an example of, you know, a PP project, I think, that can kind of reach that critical escape velocity and stop being, you know, it, it can become more than a Web3 NFT project and into like a media 100%. Project. That is and, and, Web3. and that's why Doodles actually is my biggest bag where it's, it's not a PFP. A PFP is just a profile picture. That is simply a product. Mm-hmm. The bigger question is, what can we do with this IP? And just like what you said with someone like with something like Doodles is with that IP, you can open up so many different revenue streams that bring this incredible art to outside communities where people who don't even care about Web3 and NFTs can still appreciate the art and what it stands for. And that really moves us into the conversation of royalties. So of course, what we're seeing right now, specifically recently with Magic Eden saying that they are not going to make royalties mandatory, this kind of crushes a lot of the revenue that we've seen for a lot of these PFPs. And of course, for artists, this is also detrimental as well, where a lot of artists felt like, hey, they can continue to generate wealth well after they're dead by being able to generate these secondary royalties. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand on these royalty conversations, both you and also Manifold? So, you know, Manifold works with a lot of artists, you know, and we've always been on the side of artists, especially on the royalty side of things. For the creators of the royalty registry, which is you know, a project that was a collaboration between much all these marketplaces, uh, OpenSea, Foundation, Rarible, that really focused on providing you know, a democratized way to access royalties and to add backward, backwards compatibility to old contracts that didn't have sort of on-chain royalties. And so you know, we really have done a lot of thinking about royalties in general. And you know, we always believed that royalties was a good thing. You know, but it's true that royalties on blockchain are not enforceable because they're not done at the protocol level. They're done at the application level. And because they're done at the application level, you know, every actor is responsible for just, you know, being a good citizen in society and enforcing those kind of contracts that, you know, I guess like we as a community have said have been a good thing, right? But at the end of the day, I think that almost everything in a free market will tend to zero just because, you know, as more competition comes in, you know, it's just a, it's just a natural trend of things. What I'd like to see, though, is, you know, I think that artists, artists really care about royalties, you know, for artists, it's a big thing, you know, 
Uh, a lot of artists have been sort of screwed in the traditional art market just because they don't, uh, you know, a lot of people have taken their artwork and speculated on it or like, you know, it's an artificial pumping of, pumping of value and the artists at the end of the day just, you know, it's, it's true what they say, you know, some really successful artists always end up becoming like star starving artists because they're doing it for the love and not for the money, but they never get that reward. And so Web3 kind of like offered this up, opened this door and says, hey, here's a new way of doing things. And they walk through it like, oh, this is amazing. Now we're saying we're, they're closing that door, right? And, you know, I think that for artists, they really care. And so I, I really think that what we're probably going to see is we're going to see different kind of markets appear where, uh, you know, I think some marketplaces will be kind of royalty backed, right? And, you know, it, it can be a choice. But another cool idea is maybe, you know, participation rewards, right? So if you are a collector who actually pays royalties on the artwork you buy, the artist can reward you, you know, and that's all trackable on chain. Right. And that becomes a secondary effect of, you know, if you are a patronage of this artist, that the artist will kind of bring you into a network. Whereas if you bought their thing without the royalties and like, okay, tough luck, you're in the black market. Yeah. Artists. And I guess on the flip side of that, do you see projects penalizing people who do not pay royalties? And do you think that's a good thing for the ecosystem? I think penalizing is never a good thing in general because it creates you know external behaviors that people work around. Right. Like, for example, you could actually work around this whole system of royalties just by, for example, like wrapping tokens or doing, you know, private sales. Right. There is no guaranteed way to like, you know, you create a lot. You can't, you, it's possible to create a lot of false, false negatives in that case or false positives of, you know, where you penalize people. And so, you know, I always think that that's the negative aspect of things. And, you know, I always think about, you know, what is the win-win? Like, you know, how can you make it so that all parties can win? Because that's how you build everyone up. A very blanketed question on this. Do you think that the industry just moves too fast? I don't think so. I think it's going at the exact right pace. It, it does move very fast, but you know that's how technology works, right? Technology cycles are always exponential. Like it took us like 20 years to get to the web 1.0, maybe like 10 years to go to 10, 20 years to go to web 2.0, and web 3.0. You know, you know, crypto has been around for a while, but I would say web 3.0 has only been around for like. You know, a few years and, you know, just like how fast it's going. It just, I think it's just a natural extension of the free market. You know, people are being tracked with this because it's a cool technology. There's money involved, right? It hits a lot of areas of societies and it's also a transformative technology. And so we're really just trying to like explore, you know, how does this technology fit into the world and how can it be beneficial? You know, we have our, you know, evangelists, we have people who are against it, but really, I think that we become better as we do more and more experiments. Right? Yeah, and one more question on the royalty piece before we move on to Manifold. Is there no way to enforce royalties at the contract level? There is no way to enforce royalties at the contract level. Yeah, that is completely true. There's always a way to defeat it, right? There's so many different ways you can defeat it. You know, I think one way, if, if you really wanted to, what you could do is that you could enforce it by you know, doing a whitelist, so saying only certain contracts are allowed to transfer uh, NFTs uh, on behalf. But, you know, I think there's there's other ways to defeat that, right? You can always, there, you can always do stuff like OTC, for example. You can always do things, right? You could potentially break, you know, just basic transfer functions in general. But, yeah, it, it would require quite a bit of, you know, ingenuity and, you know, I guess the only way you can do it is that if you actually created like a truly private yeah. marketplace. Okay, so I want to move over to Manifold and the product line. So Manifold's bread sure. and butter was and still is the studio. What are some top technical difficulties that you're facing right now? 
I think one of the big things is that it's uh, so Studio has been an evolution of a, the evolution of project has taken over a year to kind of get to this point. Uh, when we first started, I was actually deploying contracts manually, right? So I would actually sit with the creator and we spend a two hour Zoom session of like, okay, here's the file, go put this file into this thing and compile it, right? And I was teaching them how to like actually upload contracts to the blockchain. And that was really informative because that really informed what we needed to build for Studio. Uh, and then top then after that, once the contracts were deployed, you then had to like mint the NFTs, right? So I would like, you know, literally upload, manually upload files and be like, here, go to the contract and you can like type in this thing and hit the button. And yeah, this whole process would take like about two hours to deploy a contract and mint a single NFT on it. You know, obviously tons of learning in that and that kind of informed how we built Studio. And that's why Studio is a good product because we learned, we spent a lot of time learning before we actually developed the product. Um, but Studio was always the vision for Studio has always been, you know, be the best creative tool for artists, right? You know, be, be a powerhouse of a tool so that any artist who wants to go out there and mint NFTs has, you know, the creative tools to do so. And I think one of the biggest foresights that we had when we first started Manifold is that we created the Manifold Career Contract, which is the contracts that are, you know, backings. But I think the biggest innovation that most people don't know about is the idea of uh, contract extensions. And so a lot of... A lot of extensions, what they'll do is they'll create, or a lot of uh, uh, projects, what they do is they'll create upgradable proxy contracts, which means that the underlying implementation can change. But what we've done is that we've said, no, you know, that we, we, you want these contracts to be sovereign so no one can change them, that, you know, they are kind of immutable and guaranteed to both the artist and collector. But we still want to make be very poor thinking about, you know, how do we handle changes in the future? And so what we did was that we created this extension framework, which allows you to pretty much create blockchain applications, install those applications onto these contracts with a permission layer, and offload business logic to those contracts so that you can create you know, very different and unique NFT experiences. And so Studio, its first step was just, you know, how do we mint NFTs? But the second version of Studio was, you know, how do we create applications? And now we have this kind of like app store you know, built into Studio that lets you kind of do these more advanced like NFT contests, which leads us to the third point of, you know, gallery was, you know, created so that you now have your own way to be self-sovereign in, in Web3 and sell directly on your own websites. And, you know, the way you kind of they all work together is you can make NFT on Studio, install the gallery app, and then go listen to it on gallery if you choose to. And you have this kind of like full end-to-end -end product of, you know, you being able to like own the whole pipeline of creation all the way to distribution. You know, I think the challenge going forward right now is that we just want to create more applications. We want to create more use cases. A lot of creators out there, what they'll do is they'll create their artworks and NFTs and they'll do it with a marketplace in mind. And when they do so, they're really limiting their creativity because they're designing things for, you know, like file size or aspect ratio and not truly what NFT art uh, could be, right? They're not incorporating any like blockchain mechanics. They're not incorporating, you know, unique displays. And so for us, this was kind of the, the ground point of laying out a foundation so that anybody can go out there and start creating, you know, actual NFTs the way that they want to be created. You know, so not, the, you know, if you think of an artist, like, you know, if you said an artist, don't design it for OpenSea, design the artwork for exactly how you want it to be displayed. And here's the tool that lets you do that. And so I think, you know, the biggest challenge right now is just like getting that word out there and, you know, just providing good examples and, you know, really trying to develop a community of artists and developers are able to like really harness this kind of new, you know, paradigm of NFT creation. And so when it comes to the gallery and 
uh, for whoever's listening, this is the new marketplace that Manifold just released. The reality is there are so many established marketplaces. Why did you feel the need to jump into the ring at this time and offer your own? And you gave a few examples in terms of it kind of fits mm-hmm. into the general ethos of what you're building at Manifold, but it's a pretty heavy endeavor. So, you know, our, the intention gallery is that we're not trying to be a marketplace destination. So we're not trying to be like OpenSea where people come to OpenSea and start buying things. You know, I, same thing with like Foundation Rust. We're not trying to be Foundation or Super, super Rare. Gallery is never intended to be a destination website. Our whole goal is that it allows other people, like creators and curators, to create their own websites that they can then sell, you know, independently and sovereignly. And so, you know, part of the thinking between that is, um, you know, we have no platform fee, right? The platform fee is fully trans, trans, it's like, um, transferred to whatever curator or seller is the one that is you know, responsible for driving the sale for that, for the NFT itself. You know, our thinking behind that is that we've heard a lot of artists that we work with say, you know, why do they, why do they make certain platforms or why do they use certain platforms? And, you know, the, the fact is that they just don't have a good option for how do they want to display their, or how they want to sell, right? The default is OpenSea uh, Foundation or Super Rare. You know, and in some cases that, you know, some, some artists really love that because, you know, foundation will do, you know, a big promotion for them, right? Or even Super Rare will do like a huge, I guess, you know, get them in front of the right audiences. They have great curators that will really just kind of drive that. But there's a long tail of artists who just don't have, you know, that kind of clout. And so for them, it's like, what, what, you know, they're driving their own sales. They're doing all the marketing themselves, right? They just need a platform to really just take the NFT and sit and list it, you know, and then they do kind of their own sort of marketing cycle for that. And so for them, it makes sense that they, you know, they would want to own that part of this, the, the distribution because, you know, they are doing all the work. They can create, you know, custom experiences and so on. Um, and then on top of that too, you know, our marketplace isn't trying to be a, you know, a secondary market. We're really focused on art and really create, really trying to push the bounds of what NFTs can be rather than, you know, just focus on like, hey, we're another marketplace for selling NFTs, you know, our, our our, our goal isn't to, you know, get the most volume. It's to provide another option so that artists can truly be creative and really build for what the future of NFTs can be. Was the idea to ship this product community-driven or did it come from internally? You know, a fun fact with the marketplace is that the marketplace has actually been released for over a year now. We just never had proper tooling for everyone else to you know, use it, you know, because a studio is a big unlock. And so like everything we do manual, everything was manual at first. And so we were literally build these pages as one-off pages and then help people deploy them. And, you know, today I think the marketplace has done, uh, over 16,000 ETH. Wow. Right. Like, no, yeah. Right. So like this is before launch, right? So before launch, before we got to the point where gallery was launched, our marketplace contracts have done 16,000 ETH worth of volume on it. Right. Kind of secretly or not very really secretly, you know, it's been out in the open, but you know, without fanfare, without anything. So, you know, it's ha- it's been out there. This has been tried and tested, um, but the big unlock was gallery. Uh, on top of that, too, we now have you know kind of corporate partnerships, right? So Christie's NFT 2.0, Christie's 2.0 is built on the exact same technology uh, as Gallery Marketplace for their stuff. And so what we're really trying to say is that you know we're really trying to build the technology infrastructure for anyone to deploy their marketplace and really you know be a curator in the space without any sort of you know, barriers or a platform that gets in the way of doing so. That's great. And 
something else that your team did is you added the referral fee. And so there's a 6.9% referral fee where if I'm Dylan Haddam and I see a piece of art, I can post that piece of art onto my Twitter. And if someone buys it, then I get 6.9% of that fee. Just so I fully understand, does that fee come from the seller or from the buyer? It comes from the buyer, right? So whatever the sale price is, I guess it comes from, I guess it's like just lexicon how you describe it, right? But I guess the, so if, it's, if the piece were to sell for, let's say one ETH, right? That means that 6.9%, so 0.069 would then go towards the seller and the rest would go towards, or left, that would go towards the person who referred it and the rest would go towards the seller, which is the artist. Got it. Okay. And so with all the comments that we've had on royalties, how is the market responding to this 6.9% currently? And do you think that they're going to start responding to it differently in the near future, just given this wave of all fees drastically going down to, in some cases, zero? Yeah, well, you know, in the case of the Mountain Marketplace, we're really trying to we're really focus on being the primary sale destination site, not so much a secondary destination site. And so a lot of the artists on that are selling on Manifold's gallery now are, you know, the primary artists and doing it as a primary sale. And so, you know, the gallery does actually support secondary sales too, and it is fully royalty compliant because, you know, it, it comes in the royalty registry, which we kind of like championed. And so, you know, I think that, you know, for a lot of people, like for even, even for creators or for sellers, for example, you know, the marketplace for art NFTs is very different than the PAP market. And so the royalty discussion is very different, right? I think a lot of people who do buy one-on-one art do really support artists because at the end of the day, you have these like direct relationships with these artists. Whereas when you're doing things with that PFP project, you don't really have a relationship with the PFP project itself. You have a relationship with the community itself. And so, you know, the community is also less fickle because they are kind of really focused on, you know, the value that they extract from the PFP itself rather than the artwork being the value itself. That's really interesting. And so when it comes to all of your product lines, you know, you've got the studio, you've got gallery, and then you also have Manifold for developers. How would you rank your team's focus on those different product lines? Like what's P0 importance down to P2? And how are you allocating those internal resources? Yeah, so actually, so the way we're kind of inter uh, organized internally is that there's three kind of areas, I think. So we actually do a lot of collaborations. And so we do a lot of like bespoke projects uh, with artists. And, you know, the main reason why we do this is to actually learn what the forefront of what artists are trying to create is. And then these are, this is kind of like our R&D to build the proper proper products within Manifold, Studio, and Gallery, or, you know, even developer tooling. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we build for developer tooling is actually to support these kind of projects that we build, you know, in collaboration with artists. And so, you know, I would say that the focus probably right now is probably 50-50, right? We really, you know, at the end of the day, our whole mission is always enable creative sovereignty and really focus on, you know, building artist tooling. Uh, and so, you know, it's pretty straightforward because we have an, we have a whole community of artists shouting on their ears what, what they want and what they want to see, right? And so really just figuring out, you know, what has the biggest impact, you know, for both the artist community and for the developer community that we're working with. Thank you for explaining that to me. I want to move to one of our last parts, which is passions. What are you passionate about outside of work? Uh, I would say art. So, okay. I'll, okay. So, I, okay. I, 
I'll tell you my art story. I think this is kind of an interesting kind of arc for myself and how it kind of led me to being, you know, in this space. And so, you know, I'm an engineer by background and I would say for the longest time, pretty much my whole adult life, art meant nothing to me. Like art had zero sort of like, you know, sway in my life in general. So like to me, the utility of art is that you have an empty wall, you put a painting on a wall because, not because it looks nice, but you know, because you need to fill up the empty wall, right? Like there's empty space, right? And so everything changed when I went to Burning Man in 2015, right? So about five, six years ago. And you know, I went to Burning Man and at Burning Man, I saw the most amazing art, right? For the first time, I saw art that truly, truly spoke to me. And you know, one of the big things is that I sort of realized that part of myself is that I could never appreciate art because sort of my, my lower level needs were never met. I always thought that art was, you know, just something that some people had, but I could never be an artist. But at there, I, I kind of, everything kind of flipped. I realized that art was probably the highest level of human endeavor because if you think about what art is, art has no meaning, right? There's no, there's no actual purpose for art other than, you know, being able to be creative and like, and because of that, it's like, you know, like I don't need art to survive, right? I need everything else to survive, but art, if you pursue art, you're kind of like at this higher level of thinking of like, or higher level state of being that like, you know, this is important to me because I need to get this out there, right? And, you know, one of the things about Burning Man art is that the art there are, they're engineering sculptures, like marbles, right? You'll, you'll see this like four story tall orb of LEDs you're just like, how did they create this, right? So the engineering, you're just like thinking, like, how do I make this, right? And, you know, I, I just realized that for me, I just had, had never seen the right medium that really spoke to me. And so, I came, you know, I came back from that Burning Man and was like, wow, I just rechanged my, rechanged my whole life. Art became this like, huge focus of my life. Uh, you know, it took, it took a long time, but, you know, I, I finally appreciated what it meant to be an artist and like why art was so important. Again, you know, part of the thing about Burning Man is that it really pushes technology forward. It is the, the mixture, it merges art and technology because you have to like really think about how to create these things, how to create them safe, how to power them in a desert where there's no energy system, sorry. And yeah, that just like totally sort of my perception of like what art is. That's a great story. Okay, so like fast forward. Oh, keep going, so keep fast going. Fast forward a few years. I actually, yeah, so I actually built one of these sculptures. <laughs> so in 2018, I built a giant sculpture. Uh, you can go check it out on my Instagram. It's just that, right? It's a, it was a 15 by 20 foot dragonfly with like LED wings and it like had like a power system and the, the lights are all cool and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, I, I died building this project, right? It, we had a team of like six people, but yeah, my life for like three months was just like working on the start, working on this like sculpture in my front yard. And then also running a startup at the same time. So I was just like working like nonstop. But you know, that, that was my like connection to art. As, you know, and, you know, at that point, I truly became an artist because I actually put something out there. And so, you know, I really appreciate art just because I know just how much suffering it takes to you, you get some of this stuff out there, right? To get to that point of creation, right? And even the idea, ideation, right? And to put it out there, right? Because once you put it out there, you know, you have to be judged by what you're creating. And so... Yeah, nice. I love that. That's my, that's my story. That's so great. Thank you for sharing that. Last two questions I have for you are, are on passion and passion when it comes to leading. What kind of leadership style do you have? So I've always been like a bottom-up leader, right? So I know there's like top-down leader where you like tell everyone to do. Uh, I always see my 
part of the company being kind of, you know, at the, at the base of the pyramid, right? And so it's, you know, it's always enable people to do the best work they want to do and really try to, try to inspire them, right? And so, you know, at Manifold, the way it kind of works is that I don't see myself as, you know, telling people what to do. I tell them you know, my ideas and if someone likes the ideas, then we sort of dive, dive deeper into them, right? From there, it's like, you know, if someone takes an idea, it's how do I support them so that they can accomplish things? You know, and I always think of, I always think about like how do I put myself out of the job, right? How do I put people in place so that I can go work on you know higher order things? Um, so that's one of it. Uh, other things too is you never ask somebody to do something that you would never do yourself. You know, I think that's like very critical in like leadership because you know you have to be a team player, right? And you know just because you don't want to do something doesn't mean that you can tell somebody else to do something, right? And so you know part of Manifold is you know we're all you know I think one of the with cool parts of Manifold is that me and my co-founders are all technical co-founders. And so we all we all know how to build stuff, right? So it's never us telling somebody like, you know, go do this because, you know, for the sake of doing it, it's going to do this because like, you know, we can work together and we can build it. And it's always a very collaborative environment. Uh, and, you know, I still love building, right? At the end of the day, I still want to get my hands through I still want to code. I don't get to do much of that anymore, but, you know, I still like love that the raw act of creation, right? And, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think that one of the biggest things that we built really well in Manifold is our culture. We built this really amazing group of people who just love building, right? And you can, I think it kind of shows, right? It shows that we, when we make our decisions in the company, we're always doing it for the right, right reasons. And, you know, everyone in the company is just super supportive, super collaborative, and always want to help, you know, everyone in the key, in, within the team, but also outside of the team, right? Almost everyone in Manifold, if you like message them, they'll, they'll try to help, right? Or get you to a better spot. You could definitely see it from the community that you have been building. And when I have had random conversations with teammates from the Manifold team, they are extremely welcoming. And I I see everything that you're saying. And I know there's always issues that happen internally at companies. But for the most part, a lot of what you're saying really does show to the outside world, which does mean a lot. The last question I have for you is, who does Richard go to for advice who do I go for outside of my advice? Uh, who do I go to? Uh, there's two people. It's funny because like I think my co-founders like the smartest people in the world, right? So if I have a problem, I can just literally go up to like. So my, one of my co-founders, Wilkins, right? If you ever have a problem, you just like tell him. He'll like have the answer for you like in seconds. It's like it's like insane. Other than that, some people that really I you know I think some people I really appreciate and really got to be in you know my journey is you know I have uh, one of my good friends. He's the guy. Who brought me to Burning Man in the first place? He used to be my boss, right? And one year he's like, "Come to Burning Man, you know, I think this is for you, right?" And he really just like expanded my mind and like in many different ways. You know, one, he taught me how to be a great engineer, and two, he just taught me how to expand my like way of thinking to like you know be like really skilled, right? Uh, on top of that, too, he's just a really good friend of mine, so that's one. I have a network of great you know friends and entrepreneurs who I can always turn to for like you know if I'm having different problems. I, I would say there's no one in particular because you know it takes it takes a village, right? That's true. It we're all part of the community. Everyone has different skill sets, right? You know, I have have had you know I've been blessed to be cross paths with many influential people who have really just you know shaped my worldview and my viewpoints of you know the world. So. That's great, Richard. This has been so much fun, and and like I said from the beginning, I'm just such a huge fan, and and even more of a huge fan when I get to speak to people and positions like yours who are actually genuinely good people and it sounds like you are a good person and from anyone i've ever spoken to they say the same thing and so i'm very excited for the future of manifold i'm very excited for your own personal future and thank you very much for joining the podcast it means a lot 
Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Richard. Enjoy the rest of your week. That's it, everyone. Hope you enjoyed. Hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you next time.